Let me take you back to February 28, 2013. Um, I, I was out at a Afghan patrol base and we were out visiting the Afghan soldiers there who were surrounded. This was an area of, of Urizgan province where there'd been a lot of gunfighting, insurgent activity. Long story short, we called in an airstrike that resulted in two civilian casualties, uh, two young boys aged eight and six, they were both killed. And um, I remember going over with my, my medic and a few other um, soldiers and, and seeing their, their little bodies and just thinking, what the hell are we doing here? And I think that was where I really, in my, in my core, hated war for the first time and was, I think, disabused of any notion of it being adventure or a boy's own tale or an opportunity to, uh, you know, pursue ambition. It was actually, it's a state of disorder. It's ugly. Innocent people die. And um, it's, it's very, very painful. So that was the day I hated war. That's Andrew Hasty, a former commander of Australia's legendary special forces, the SAS. We'll meet him properly later in the episode. He captures well the savagery of war. As the American historian Howard Zinn put it, there is no flag large enough to cover the shame of killing innocent people. War is a horror. Can there really be any place for it in a civilised society? In just the 12 months prior to October this year, the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project has recorded more than 155,000 fatalities internationally due to armed conflicts. And it's not just the immediate casualties of war, of course. The consequences of violent conflict continue for decades after. The United Nations reports that prolonged conflict keeps countries poor. A civil war costs a medium-sized developing country the equivalent of 30 years GDP growth. And it takes 20 years for trade levels to return to pre-war levels. Given the amount of death and destruction involved, it has to be asked, is it possible to have anything like a just war? Or is strict pacifism, a commitment to non-violent resistance, always the only intelligent response? And even if it were possible to justify going to war, how could anyone hope to carry out the business of war justly? Just war. An oxymoron? That's our topic for today. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Underceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, Person of Interest, by J. Warner Wallace. Every episode, we'll be exploring some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we'll be trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. And if you want to help us get the truth out and don't change your mind after this episode, please consider going to undeceptions.com and clicking donate. We're about two thirds the way to covering the costs of this pod. And with your help, we're going to get there this season or next, or maybe the one after that. But we're going to get there, God willing. Anything you can do is appreciated. We shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. That's, of course, Winston Churchill, the UK Prime Minister during World War II, delivering perhaps the most famous war speech ever. It's stirring stuff and it pulls no punches. It's actually part of a much larger speech Churchill delivered following the evacuation of British troops from Dunkirk, which he labelled a colossal military disaster. 
But there's no talk here of suing for peace. Instead, he talks of the necessity of war. The speech certainly buoyed British hearts in 1940, but the arguments behind Churchill's justification for more suffering and violence are part of a tradition at least 1,600 years older. The theory of just war. What do we mean when we speak of just war? Well, John, um, the first thing we shouldn't mean is um, holy war. That's to say uh, war where those waging it imagine that they are pure and righteous and the other side are um, wholly unrighteous and that therefore the righteous can treat the unrighteous just as they please. That's Nigel Bigger. He is Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles, but we're interested in talking to him about his 2014 benchmark volume, In Defence of War. Just war uh, is not holy war. So I prefer to talk about justified war, war that is justified, all things considered. Um, War's not, not good. If we can avoid it, we should avoid it. Sometimes, however... Um, we are morally obliged to engage in it, uh, in in all its moral ambiguities. As a leading moral philosopher of warfare, Nigel is acutely aware that at one level, every culture that goes to war thinks that their wars are justified. From from the beginning, people have felt the need to justify going to war. Uh, And they'll do it simply in terms of, let's say, self-defence or in terms of imposing order. I, mean, I, I'm, I run a project at the moment uh, that, that examines views of empire from ancient China to the modern period and empire um, um, well before the Christian period is justified in terms of imposing peace on warring peoples. Um, so I, I've no doubt that um, throughout history, um, perhaps even Genghis Khan felt the need to justify it in some way. But as a Christian, I, I take it for granted that human beings are moral. And that whether we're Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler or um, William Gladstone, we feel the need to justify what we do. So there's certainly been thought about what it takes to justify war before the, the Christian period. So everyone justifies their war at some level. But the theme of just war is usually associated with the Christian tradition. That's because in the late 4th and early 5th centuries, authorities within the Roman Empire started coming to church intellectuals seeking advice. And Christians had to do some fancy thinking about what it means to provide state security in a vaguely Christian way. Is that even possible? In the course of the 300s, um, Christians... Uh, found themselves in positions of political responsibility. And anyone who was in government, particularly in the ancient period, would have discovered that um, the maintenance of law and order was the, was the basic duty of those in government because there wasn't much of it. <laughs> Unlike uh, um, uh, in contemporary Australia or Britain, peace was not the rule. And uh, then the question is, well, how do you maintain law and order? Do you do it by persuading people? Well, if you can... Uh, but unfortunately not all people can be persuaded. So what do you do? Uh, That requires the use of force. One of the great minds of this period, Christian or secular, was Augustine of Hippo. St. Augustine, as he came to be known, was born in the Roman province of North Africa, and after a lengthy career as a professor of rhetoric, he converted to Christianity. It's quite a cool story in its own right for another day. Augustine was a towering intellect, and he published over five million words. My doctorate was just over 100,000 words, so Augustine wrote that 50 times over. One of his monster works, perhaps his greatest intellectual achievement, was his book, The City of God. It was written in the wake of the sacking of Rome by the Visigoths in the year 410. It was a catastrophe. And he wrote this not so much trying to make sense of it as to point out that no earthly realm, not even a Christian empire, could be an eternal city. People had thought of Rome as the eternal city, but Augustine said, 
nope. We are all fallen, including Christians. And the best we can hope for is an approximation of the kingdom of God until that kingdom, the only true eternal city, comes and restores all things to their proper ends. Until then, he said, in this fallen in-between time, there is some necessity, some justification for state force to restrain evil for the sake of the good. And so Augustine, uh, in the early 400s, finds himself um, being asked by uh, Christian tribunes, and tribunes were uh, military commanders, and in those days, there was no police. The, the, the army, the military, did whatever policing there was. Christian military commanders writing to Augustine saying, now how, how, can, how can we square our, our public government responsibility with our Christian faith? And that's, uh, that's what provokes um, some of, of Augustine's reflections. And, and unlike later, uh, you find Augustine's reflections on the justified use of force in a variety of different places, it's not systematic, uh, but a couple of places, a couple of the the classic places are, are in letters, in correspondence with these two tribunes, uh, Marcellinus and Boniface. Augustine to Boniface, peace should be the object of your desire. War should be waged only as a necessity, and waged only that God may by it deliver men from the necessity and preserve them in peace. For peace is not sought in order to be the kindling of war, but war is waged in order that peace may be obtained. Therefore, even in waging war, cherish the spirit of a peacemaker, that by conquering those whom you attack, you may lead them back to the advantages of peace. For our Lord says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It's clear that Augustine saw warfare, even just warfare, as a tragic necessity in this earthly city, which can only ever be partially Christianized through the principles he laid down. In a moving passage toward the end of the city of God, Augustine writes, But the wise man, they say, will wage just wars. Surely, however, if he remembers that he is a human being, it is far more true that he will grieve at being faced with the necessity of waging just wars. If they were not just, he would not have to wage them, and so there would be no wars for the wise man. In Augustine's view, in other words, even just wars are never holy, and they are certainly not happy, even in victory. Well, one extremely uh, decisive move he makes is to say that what matters is motive. That's to say, um, you know, one can use force. Um, and yes, sometimes force will, will cause harm, serious harm, depends what kind of force you use. You can use force, but you can use it for different motives. You can, you can do it because you hate the other person, because you want to wipe them off the face of the earth, uh, because you're defending some private interest. Uh, or you can use it uh, in the public interest um, because um, the defense of innocent people makes it necessary. Uh, and, and so what, he's, what he was saying was you can do it out of love. Um, you're threatening my neighbor, John, uh, um, and, and you won't desist through my persuasion, so I have to intervene and force you to stop. Uh, I don't want to do that. I do it out of love primarily for my neighbor. And Augustine goes on to say something slightly more controversial. He says, I do it out of love for you too, because I'm stopping you from sinning. And so he talks then about the possibility of um, what he calls, I think, a, a sort of kind harshness, or is it a kind of harsh kindness? I think it's a kind harshness. What, what we would call tough love. I mean, love, in his view, um, sometimes has to be tough. That's the theory. The practice, though, is infinitely harder. War is messier than Augustine's theorizing lets on. It's bloody, horrible, obviously deadly. 
My little country alone, Australia, has lost close to 103,000 defence personnel in police actions, peacekeeping and international conflicts since the 1860s. Even if you could get your head around the morality of war, why would anyone actually want to be a soldier? Well, there are a number of factors, like any decision, that shape your uh, approach. And for me, there was a tradition of family service. My grandfathers had served in World War II. Uh, My uncle had been uh, conscripted during the Vietnam War. He didn't deploy to Vietnam, but he went through Skyville, did officer training, and I think was on the reserve list to go. And the way my family always talked about military service in that context was that it made my grandfather's men and it made my uncle a man and sort of transformed them. And so I'd always thought about military service in those terms. Let me reintroduce you to Andrew Hasty, the former SAS commander we heard at the top of the episode. He's since gone into federal parliament. He's the member for Canning in Western Australia and the current assistant defence minister for Australia. That's defence secretary for my US listeners. His personal call to join the military began with a family tradition, but it very quickly morphed into a matter of the heart. 9-11 came along in my first year of university at UNSW in Kensington, and uh, I felt uh, that was a a hinge of history, and I wanted to be part of it. I was lacking a direction at the time, and uh, so I joined the the Australian Defence Force and then went down to the Australian Defence Force Academy and and the next 13 years served in uniform. And then there were personal reasons as well, Uh, strong protective instincts, a desire to be tested physically, mentally. And I wanted to be in the SAS as soon as I joined um, to sort of do the toughest military training I could. And then the sense of adventure. You know, you're a young guy. You want to get out, um, see danger, see other parts of the world. And, and all those things came together. And that's why I started in the army. Andrew deployed with the SAS to Afghanistan in 2013 as part of the Special Operations Task Group. Did you ever struggle with an apparent clash between your Christian faith and the intrinsic violence of being in the military? I didn't. I had thought about it quite a bit. I'm a Christian and, you know, I believe in the doctrine of original sin um, and the government exists for a reason to, to, to promote order. And so I felt in the context of, you know, uh, studying Romans 13, um, that it was, a, it was a proper vocation and a good one. Romans chapter 13 is one of those red-letter passages when it comes to a Christian justification of war. Paul has just made clear in Romans 12 that Christians are to, quote, live in harmony with one another, do not repay anyone evil for evil. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. All pretty pacifist, right? And then in the very next chapter, chapter 13, he writes this. The governing authorities that exist have been established by God. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. It suddenly sounds like Paul thinks governments have God's permission to use the sword, force against evil. So this is a moment to phone a friend. Dr. Mike Bird is my colleague at Ridley College, where he's the academic dean, lecturer in theology, and probably the most published New Testament scholar in the country. Hey, how you doing? Not too bad, man. Not too bad. Good, mate. Mate, you were once a paratrooper and now you're a biblical scholar. I'm sure there's a whole episode in that. Um, You've also written a giant commentary on Romans, among other things. So I've got some technical questions for you about Romans 13, right? So the first is this. Is Paul contradicting Jesus when he talks about governments using the sword to restrain evil? No, I don't think so. Jesus deals a lot with what individual Jews and his followers have to be in order to be the people of God. But there's also this view in the Bible that government is kind of given by God to hold back the forces of death and chaos. 
Okay, so you know, in our world, we tend to worry about too much government. You know, too many mandates, too many requirements, too many laws. But in the ancient world, the real danger was not enough law, because you know, anarchy was a lot closer to becoming a reality in their world than it was in ours. And in that context, Paul is saying, you know, look, we don't we don't want to be against government per se. We don't want to. You know, replace one dictator with another one and you know law and order and and keeping the peace uh, is important and you can say that kind of dovetails with what jesus says about you know blessed are the peacemakers you know you've got to sometimes bring peace to hostilities and that can require different applications of persuasion depending on what you're doing at a given time okay so but let's go to romans 12 like just before romans 13 and you know where Paul talks about the sword, is Paul contradicting himself? Because in 12, it's all about not taking revenge. And in chapter 13, it's about authorities, you know, with the sword. Well, I think there's a big difference, though, between uh, revenge, you know, your your own sort of unbridled lust to get back at someone who's hurt you compared to the government's uh, ability to use you know, levels of persuasion and degrees of force as necessary to protect the public. So I think they're talking about slightly different topics. <laughs> but I think Paul is doing two things. He's saying, you know, government at its best, okay, embodies these ideals. And he's also pointing out that government is subordinated to God, even the Roman Empire. And that, I think, is the real striking thing. He's saying even the most powerful government in the world at the moment is still nothing more than a, a servant or an instrument of God's own providential care for his people. The way I look at it is the Bible is dealing with a world where you have various non-ideal states. Like in an ideal world, there shouldn't be any swords, there shouldn't be any wars, there shouldn't be any uh, capital punishment or even any prisons. But because the world is not ideal, because it is messy, often cold, brutal, dark and violence, sometimes you do need measures like these. Sometimes you do need to make war on certain nations that invade others or certain nations that start out on genocidal campaigns so my conviction is i think christians can join the military they can work in these areas however you've got to be discerning and you have to constantly ask yourself whether you're on the side of good or are you simply becoming an instrument for other uh, more malevolent forces good on you mate thanks so much for your time thank you john bye-bye there's no condemnation directly of soldiering in the bible and i always felt comfortable in that the challenge for me was always um, my identity um, as a Christian. My my identity is in Christ first and foremost, uh, and then as a soldier, um, you can get caught up in in being a soldier and that defining you, and um, you can become quite um, harsh, uh, brutal when necessary. And I suppose the challenge was always to, to be charitable and, and remind myself that soldiering ultimately is an act of love towards your neighbor, towards your countrymen. And um, that was the challenge. That so was more a hard issue than anything else about what sort of a person I was going to become as a soldier and, and, and remain. St. Augustine's theory of just war wasn't just about how to decide whether going to war is just. It was also about how to conduct warfare once you'd made that decision. He utterly rejected the usual Roman justifications for war, which included enlarging the empire, protecting honour, removing iniquitous nations, and often the mere assumption that Roman subjugation of others was itself a form of peace, the Pax Romana. Augustine said no to all of that. The great Oxbridge scholar and biographer of Augustine, Henry Chadwick, summarised Augustine's thinking on just war in five points. Military force can be just when, one, its goal is to establish mutual peace between the parties, two, it is waged only in self-defence or to recover stolen property, three, soldiers exercise maximum restraint in hostilities, a proportional response. Four, fighting is conducted, quote, with such a respect for humanity as to leave the opponent without the sense of being humiliated and resentful. And five, prisoners of war are preserved, not, as so often was the case, executed. 
It sounds okay in theory, but as soon as I say all that, this is where it becomes pretty troubling for any proud Australians, especially for any with a connection to our famed special forces, the SAS. In November last year, Aussies woke to discover that some of our best troops had been conducting war in a most unjust way in Afghanistan. The report finds that some Special Air Service Regiment commanders in Australia fostered within the SAS what Justice Burton terms a self-centred warrior culture. In this context, it's alleged that some patrols took the law into their own hands. Rules were broken, stories concocted, lies told, and prisoners killed. The report compiled by Justice Paul Brereton, himself a Major General in the Army, revealed there was credible evidence to assert that 19 Australian soldiers had illegally killed 39 people and cruelly treated another two. At the time, Andrew Hastie was fierce and frank in his condemnation of those responsible at every level for such tragedies. And yet Andrew remains confident that there is such a thing as a good warrior, one that Augustine and maybe Paul and Jesus themselves would call servants of God. In his words, they never think of themselves as bigger than the team or the mission. They are humble. They are committed to truth. Do you mind taking me to a scene in your career, um, in as much or little detail as you want, okay, um, where you felt that there was something really noble about what you were doing? There are two moments that I can think of. Uh, one is um, not violent and another moment is violent. Uh, the first one was in 2009. I was over in Afghanistan with um, my cavalry troop and we were out on patrol in one of the far-flung parts of Urizgan province. Think, imagine, imagine a world a thousand years ago, subsistence farmers, barely any technology. And as we arrived in this village, I got approached by the elders and their tractor, which looked you know, 40 or 50 years old, had be, become bogged and they couldn't get it out. And there was I with, um, you know, two 13-ton, eight-wheeled vehicles and uh, a couple of Bushmasters. And so we hitched up the tractor and dragged this tractor out of the bog. And then I met with the elders and had a good old chat. And they were so appreciative that we'd help them out. And the only way they could repay me was to give me a handful of seed. And uh, I remember walking back to my armoured vehicle in all my combat gear with a handful of seed getting in the turret and turning to my gunner and saying, what do we do with the seed? And so, I, um, But it was one of those moments where um, we really connected and um, just to be able to help people in need was great. The second one, the second one happened in 2013. Um, I was over there with a special operations task group and we had uh, intelligence that a truck bomb was going to be driven onto the base at some point, there was a there was a plan to, to hurt us. Our job as the special forces was to provide force protection to the base. We got intelligence. We we managed to locate the truck bomber, and he was removed as a threat. And I still remember coming back to base, getting off the helicopters, and once it was confirmed that we we'd, we'd got our man, um, everyone had, was able to take their armor off, their helmets off outside the base, and there was just a a release of tension. And I thought that was. You know, I was caring for my neighbour. My troop was caring for our neighbours and that was a good thing. That good warrior culture is what Thomas Aquinas considered an essential component for conducting a just war. Thomas Aquinas was an Italian priest and immensely influential theologian and philosopher who lived during the 13th century. He wrote incredible works that are still referenced today on the nature of God, sin, creation, revelation, and much more. We'll be devoting an entire episode to Aquinas in the not-too-distant future. Anyway, Thomas is also one of the other big names in the tradition of just war theory. Nigel Bigger says 800 years after Augustine, Thomas Aquinas took the Church Fathers' letters and created the first true code of just war. 
According to Aquinas, three conditions have to be met before a just war can be waged. First, the war has to be waged under the command of a legitimate authority. Not anyone can declare war. Secondly, the war needs to be waged for a just cause, on account of some wrong the aggressors have committed. Thirdly, warriors must have the right intent to promote good and to avoid evil. The the Thomistic tradition that he spawned then led um, people like um, Vittoria and Suarez, the Spanish scholastics in the late 1500s, early 1600s, to to articulate clearly two in-bellow criteria. That's to say, uh, uh, ad bellum is, what do we do when we go into war? That's what Aquinas dealt with. In bello uh, is, now we're at war, how do we do it justly? And uh, they articulated two criteria. First of all was uh, discrimination. That's to say, uh, you shouldn't uh, aim to kill uh, people who are not bearing arms. Innocence, in the sense of in ends, not harming people, people are not harming. And the second criterion was proportionality, that uh, you shouldn't use more force than you really, really have to. Okay, so when has this... Um set of criteria for just war being uh, applied positively in, in, in your mind. Um, when have we ever seen a war that really was justly warranted in the first place and justly conducted? Well, the, the obvious one, and it's the one that most Anglo-Saxons uh, would um, regard as a justified war is, of course, the Second World War. Uh, especially the war against uh, Hitler, although in your neck of the woods, the war against Imperial Japan. But uh, certainly the war against Hitler is the war that most Anglo-Saxons and most people in the West, I think, would regard as morally justified. Uh, But let's be clear here. um, The war against Hitler was not a war that Britain wanted. And we all know about the attempts in the 1930s to appease Hitler. I mean, the First World War had been horrendous. No one wanted to repeat it. And strenuous efforts were made to give Germany, Nazi Germany, benefit of doubt, uh, to to persuade Hitler to accept the borders that, that, that were there, not to transgress them. But that failed. That failed. Uh, so when war came in, in 1939, uh, it was a last resort. Uh, there was no other option. So there was that. And this wasn't a... It wasn't, in a sense, it was a crusade in the sense that uh, Churchill rightly discerned um, the the radically evil nature of the Nazi regime. It was, at its heart, it was racist. And as we discovered, um, and even as some Germans discovered to their surprise, it was massively, murderously racist. Christian intellectuals like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas might have taught the West when and how a war may be conducted within the bounds of justice. But of course, the fact is, the Christian church has then depended on these theories and warped them to support all kinds of vile, bloody conflicts. I'm thinking of Charlemagne, the Christian ruler of Europe in the 8th and 9th centuries, who waged a literal jihad, forcing the Saxons up in northern Germany to convert to Christianity or face his armies. If it wasn't for one of his advisers, Alcuin of York, who convinced Charlemagne to convert the Saxons through persuasion, this would have gone on for decades more. Or I'm thinking of the Crusades a few centuries later. Um, Personally, I don't mind going on the record as saying that the First Crusade in the 1090s was a just war in its conception. It was aimed at helping the Byzantine Empire, that's the Christian remnant of the old Roman Empire, from decades of Islamic aggression. But there was nothing just about the conduct of the war. As I pointed out back in episodes 41 and 42, all about the Crusades, the Christian Crusaders slaughtered Jewish villages along the way to the Holy Land. And when they took Jerusalem, they slaughtered thousands of non-combatants, women and children in their frenzy. So the very inventors of the just war tradition in the West, the Christian church, have sometimes been wild hypocrites in the matter of warfare. All of this demonstrates that you might have a fine justification for war at your fingertips and still engage in unjust wars. And that raises the question, is pacifism, practically and ethically, the only viable path 
That's after the break. This episode of Underceptions is sponsored by Zondervan's new book, Person of Interest, by Jay Warner Wallace. Jim is an American homicide detective, and I got to have a quick chat with him earlier this month about his new book. Hey, Jim, what a wonderful idea for a book you have produced. So in a sentence, what is your book about? So what I try to do in this book is look at the evidence for Christianity, the evidence for Jesus, without referring to anything in the New Testament. Because I was a skeptic at 35 when I first uh, investigated Christianity, and I would not have been interested in your silly scripture. But it turns out there's enough evidence in the fuse and fallout of history. And I was somebody who was working nobody missing persons or nobody murders as an investigator. So I knew how to apply this template. So I simply applied the template of what's the fuse leading up to that explosive moment of the murder and what's the fallout that follows that explosive moment of the murder. That's how we solve nobody murder cases. I simply applied that template to Jesus. What's the fuse of history leading up to Jesus and what's the fallout that follows Jesus? It turns out if you had no evidence in the crime scene, because no body murders have no body. Um, you know, this is when someone like kills his wife and claims that she ran off. Well, how do you solve those cases? That's exactly how I approached Jesus. I guess I was not somebody at 35 as a skeptic who was willing to consider the Bible. So this is how you could actually make a case for Jesus without referencing the New Testament. I love it. it, it it's uh, turning my academic discipline of history into something much cooler. <laughs> so <laughs> I can tell you what's amazing about Jesus is this nobody who existed in the first, lived in the first century, who had no platform at all. If you compare him to all the other important figures of the first century, like say Nero, right, who led an, a, 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 an entire empire, why is it that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, has had such an amazing impact on the things that matter most to me as an atheist? Art, music, literature, education, science. No one's had an impact on those five areas like Jesus of Nazareth. So what I want people to come away with is like, you haven't probably been taught this in school. But it turns out that no one is a person of interest like Jesus is a person of interest. And he has the least right to being that person of interest. Unless, of course, what he claimed about himself is true. I can't wait for my listeners to go out and grab your book. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you. You can get Person of Interest by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, or just go to zondervan.com for more information. Right now, around the world, there are 129 million girls who don't go to school. And we know that for every additional year of primary school, a girl's future wage increases by 10 to 20%. They get married later, they're less vulnerable to violence. There is no doubt then that educating girls saves lives and builds stronger families and communities. Anglican Aid is committed to ensuring that girls are able to receive a quality education regardless of their economic circumstances. Just in the last 12 months, Anglican Aid has supported 20 projects, either schools or vocational education initiatives around Africa, Asia and the Middle East. These projects are providing girls with a safe space to learn and grow. They're being given a chance to create a better future. You can help Anglican Aid do more of this essential work. I really trust these guys. I hope you will as well. So please go to anglicanaid.org.au. That's anglicanaid.org.au to support their wonderful work. During the occupation of Atlanta, the American Civil War general, William Tecumseh Sherman, wrote to city officials that, quote, war is cruelty and you cannot refine it. Years later, in an address to the Michigan Military Academy, he would shorten this sentiment to just three words. War is hell. If war is hell, then there's no redeeming it. There is no ground for a just war and no war that can be waged justly. And some people I really respect insist that this is certainly the case for those who profess to follow Christ, the Prince of Peace. So it's time to phone another friend. 
Jared McKenna is an award-winning social change educator. He's the founding CEO of Common Grace, the former non-violent movement educator for World Vision in the Middle East and Eastern Europe. And he spent much of his adult life living with recently arrived refugees and those struggling in society. We'll link to everything in the show notes, including his podcast with Drew Hart called Inverse. Hey, Jared. How's your lovely family, mate? Uh, they're doing fantastic. Uh, Cap's due in January, so we've got another little macker on the way. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, we need to pivot to some serious topics. Can you um, roll out for us the Christian case for an absolute commitment to nonviolent resistance or what people sometimes call pacifism? So let's start with what works, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will connect the dots for people for what's faithful. Well, where I'm going to take you is the thorough and compelling research of Harvard University's political scientist, Erica Chinaweth, who has made clear that nonviolence is the most successful strategy for combating injustice and oppression, and by a long way. Uh, Chinaweth herself, who has a military background, collected data from every violent and nonviolent mass action from 1900 to 2006. We're talking 323 conflicts and analyze them in the context of 160 variables. As Harvard Kennedy School writes about her research, quote, Chinoweth expected that violent movements would be shown to be more successful in overthrowing the regimes they were opposing, but the data proved her wrong, end quote. So here's the thing. Nonviolent campaigns were literally twice as likely to succeed. Countries where nonviolent resistance was maintained without violence were 10 times more likely to transition to democracies, regardless of whether their initial campaigns failed or succeeded. The empirical research shows that movements that were able to mobilise 3.5% of the population, just 3.5%, were uniformly successful. As a Christian and a historian, John, I'm sure your mind is going some of the same places uh, mine goes when you hear those kind of numbers. The early church, in the words of Thomas Merton, the early church converted the Roman Empire through nonviolence. Might it be that the nonviolent way of Jesus is the most effective force against evil in our world? If only we convince more Christians to be faithful in dropping all weapons and taking up our cross and allow the data of the resurrection to prove Jesus right. In a sentence, Jared, um, uh, what do you think of the so-called just war tradition in church history? I heard that giggle, John. For, for us charismatics, one sentence is difficult, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and... Uh, be disciplined. The just war criteria of proportionality and protection of non-combatants has next to never been met in modern war, and the theory instead has functioned as a practical denial of the resurrection of Jesus and kept Christians from leading on the costly cutting edge of what it is to pursue lasting healing change in our world through the nonviolent way of Jesus. Love your work, mate. Thank you so much. Thank you, mate. Bless you. It's really strong stuff. And the fact is, Jared's position is the position of a huge number of faithful Christians today. Of course, they would just say that's because it's the Christian position. Nigel Bigger sees it differently, and we all need to judge which tradition fits the evidence best. Contrary to what some say, uh, when you come across those who were exercising uh, political or public responsibility, namely centurions, um, in the pages of the Gospels and, uh, and the, the Acts of the Apostles. I think there are at least three we, we, we come across. Um, not once does Jesus or Paul say to these people, you should stop um, doing what you're doing. And on every occasion, the centurion is lauded for their religious faith at one point, course, Jesus says um, of one centurion, I have not found such faith in Israel. Right. So, so there's, it, it, it's a silence, but there, there, there's no rebuke of the military profession, the policing profession, even of a foreign occupier as, as such. So you could say, well, the state's other people's business, not ours. And some Christians, some Anabaptist Christians do say that. I, I myself find that um, irresponsible. I think um, God incarnate, God chose to become incarnate and come down 
and, and live among messy humanity in all our mess, in all our moral ambiguity, and Christians should follow God incarnate uh, into the ambiguous bits, the difficult bits, the hard choice bits of human life. And that involves taking responsibility. You go so far as to say that the absolute pacifist, the, you know, but let's, let's use the terminology they prefer, um, those absolutely committed to active nonviolence are, and I'm going to quote you here, prepared to perform deliberate acts of omission which permit innocence to die at the hands of the unjust. Them's fighting words. <laughs> Did you mean them? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I do have a tendency occasionally to get irritated. Uh, yes, I do. I mean that, at least in the sense that, I mean, there are times, I think, when one has to, and a Christian should, admit that we cannot defend the innocent. Uh, there are no moral means to do it. And and uh, let's be clear here, um, although the theory of just war does justify going to war and certain ways of fighting war, it does so within moral limits. And so if you can't fight a war justly, you may not fight. And that means there may be some innocence, there may be a liberal democratic environment, you may not defend by those means. Uh, so you know, just warriors and pacifists together have to face the fact that sometimes they are morally prohibited from doing what they think might be able to save the innocents, and they have to watch the innocents being abused. So that's interesting. There is a point where pacifists and just war advocates coincide. Sometimes they will both refuse to participate in war. And I'm happy to say Professor Bigger acknowledges he might have gone too far in his criticism of the Christian pacifist tradition. Uh, but I suppose maybe my remark was slightly unfair in the sense that the, 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 that hard situation is one that everyone must face, be they pacifist or non-pacifist. But I, I, I guess I wanted to say that you know, pacifists need to look full in the face the consequences of their passivity. Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. Probably Jesus' most famous speech is the one in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, the so-called Sermon on the Mount. It opens with a kind of grammatical drum roll, using seven verbs in a row to build up to the opening words of the Messiah. It literally reads, Seeing the crowds, he ascended the mountain, and sitting down, his disciples came to him, and so opening his mouth, he taught them, saying... The effect of this is to slow things down so that we concentrate on Jesus' opening words. And those opening words are about humility, meekness, peacemaking, and accepting violence, not dealing it out. The very first statement is about spiritual bankruptcy and sorrow. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's a remarkable opening couple of lines. What's perhaps the richest ethic ever preached opens by calling on us to acknowledge that we are morally and spiritually poor. And more than that, we are to mourn the fact that we are a fallen people in a fallen world. Despite the drum roll leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, there is no triumphalism here from Jesus. In fact, much of what Jesus says next seems to be aimed against the triumphalist longings of some of his fellow Jews in the first century. Many saw the Romans as the big problem, and the big solution was violent revolution, aimed at expelling the pagan overlords and leaving the Holy Land in the possession of the pure. There's a text called the Psalms of Solomon. I'm sure I've quoted it on the show before. It was written just a generation before Jesus, shortly after the Romans took over Israel. And it captures perfectly this revolutionary spirit. It goes like this. 
The kingdom of our God is forever over the nations in judgment. See, O Lord, and raise up for your people their king, the son of David. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. And their king shall be the Lord Messiah. Psalms of Solomon, chapter 17. But the Lord Messiah we're introduced to in the Gospels speaks of being poor in spirit and mourning. And then he adds these famous words. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The fans of the Psalms of Solomon might have scratched their heads at this point. Jesus is saying that those who will get back the land aren't the ones willing to shed Roman blood. It's the meek, those who refrain from brute force. And this means that when Jesus says the peacemakers are the true children of God, he isn't advocating a Roman-style peace, you know, the peace that crushes enemies into silence. He must mean avoiding conflict. And more than that, seeking to establish harmony and mutual flourishing at all costs. So, the pacifists are right, right? At one level, yes. The goal of God's people is to enact peace in the world. And they are forbidden to try to extend God's kingdom in the world through force. Charlemagne does not get a free pass. And yet... It's also true that Jesus celebrated a military victory when he attended the temple for the Hanukkah festival in John chapter 10. This festival was all about the Maccabean war against the Greek tyrant Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Jesus also met Roman centurions. And just like John the Baptist before him, he didn't even hint that their role as soldiers was problematic. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus speaks positively of wise war preparations as a good analogy of counting the cost of following him. And in Luke 22, just before his own arrest, he actually tells his disciples to buy a sword. Not to defend him, but I take it he wanted them to be able to defend themselves. None of this makes sense to me if Jesus was a strict pacifist. It fits better with the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 and 13. In Romans 12, he insists that Christians can never further their own cause or the cause of God's kingdom by violence, only by love. But then in Romans 13, he concedes that deadly force may be used by authorities to defend the public good and restrain public evil. None of this takes away from the central call of the Sermon on the Mount. Christians must seek peace above all else. They must never try to extend Christian influence or God's kingdom through force. The only weapons Christ has given the church to do the work of the church are prayer, service and persuasion. You can press play now. Some of my listeners uh, will be Christian pacifists. Um, I mean, there's a sense in which you are a pacifist as well, like because you want peace, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, but 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 they uh, they will be you know quite doctrinally committed to pacifism. Uh, what do you say to them, your fellow Christians who are absolutely committed to non-violence? Um, How do you, in a sense, justify your former life as a soldier and your current role as a decision maker? Well, I'm not sure I could justify it to them except for the reasons I've already stated. But to say that I respect their position, I respect it's um, a position of conscience rooted in, in scripture, particularly for Christian pacifists. There's a long tradition of Christian pacifism and, um, I, I, respect and, and and love them for that. We have a disagreement though. And um, my view is that war ultimately sh- should be aimed at towards restoring peace. And as Augustine says, we should have the spirit of a peacemaker as a soldier. And I think within the Christian tradition, there is um, a legitimate position for me um, to, to, to be a soldier and, and be part of a government. 
And I think we can listen to each other charitably and disagree and sort it out one day. <laughs> yeah. And what do you say to those who aren't Christians? We have plenty of those who are listening uh, to Underceptions, who, who are, are also absolutely opposed to state violence. What have you got that isn't a theological argument for them? I think uh, evil exists in the world. Uh, there are people who will seek to hurt others. And um, my way of caring for my neighbor, for loving my neighbor, is to offer myself as a way of protecting them. And I think there's nobility in that. Um, and I think it is a position that can be respected. We can agree, but I think the state still has to uh, protect the people. The reason why we form governments is because we need governments to do things that we can't do on our own. And um, we have militaries who use controlled violence to, to protect the people they serve, and, and I'm, I'm okay with that. Controlled violence. That's the key phrase here. Thomas Aquinas's summary of what constitutes a just war depends on the question of proportionality. It's an issue certainly captured in some of our best dramas on warfare. We are doing nothing. We are not doing nothing. Four high-rated military targets. And this is good? Of course it's not good. There is no good. It's what there is. It's how you behave if you're the most powerful nation in the world. It's proportional, it's reasonable, it's responsible, it's merciful, it's not nothing. Four high-rated military targets. Which they'll rebuild again in six months. Then we'll blow them up again in six months. We're getting really good at it. It's what our fathers taught us. Yes, that's the West Wing. And my apologies to those of you who hate the show you weirdos. It's the episode titled A Proportional Response, where Chief of Staff Leo McGarry has to convince an enraged President Bartlett that there must be a measured response to an unprovoked Syrian attack on an American airplane. I'm not sure which fathers McGarry is referring to, but it's certainly true that the great fathers of the church, from Augustine to Aquinas, taught that even where the cause is just, the response must be proportional. I suppose the question is, does this ever get discussed in the real world, or is this just another West Wing fantasy? Theoretically, war is a potential tool of government. The Prussian general Karl von Clausewitz said, war is merely the continuation of politics by other means. But do governments today really stop and think in terms of just war? I put that to Professor Nigel Bigger and to the Honourable Andrew Hasty. Is this discussion of just war um, simply a rarefied, you know, topic for moral philosophers and theologians, uh, or are these considerations ever taken seriously in the the halls of power? Yes, as as we said at the beginning, I mean, I do think human beings are moral. And uh, one symptom of that is you'll find even very wicked people trying to justify what they're doing. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, um, and if, 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 if they've done wrong, they'll try and hide it. Uh, so that's an indication that somehow we feel, we feel a, a deep impulse to be right or to be seen to be right morally. Uh, so I think most people who make decisions about going to war and fighting war will want to think one way or another they're doing what's right and certainly in britain in the last um 25 years i have seen the criteria of just war discussed in the press and if it's just in the press you can be damn sure that uh, uh, people in government are also talking about it because even if, even if it were the case that no one in government had a conscience um they do care about what the electorate think so my perception is is right now actually uh just war criteria partly because we've had a lot of wars lately uh just war criteria are in the public bloodstream in fact, the Australian Defence Forces just issued a document all about military ethics where just war gets six 
pages, largely reflecting the teachings of Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, uh, just cause, right intention, proportionality, last resort, and so on. And special thanks to the listener who sent me this document. It then adds a consideration that I don't remember reading in Augustine or Aquinas. You must have a reasonable chance of winning. It says, armed conflict is justified when there is a reasonable probability the intended objectives can be achieved. Huh. I don't know what I think of that. We'll put a link to the entire document in our show notes. I was particularly interested to know what Andrew Hastie thought about all this. As a former soldier and now as Assistant Defence Minister for Australia, clearly just war is a topic that comes up, right? It absolutely has influenced the culture. So I did four years at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Duntroon. Uh, you cover these things in military ethics. And um, in fact, when you go overseas and you get your rules of engagement, that is, um, I guess, the codified form of just war theory. Um, you should only use proportionate force when necessary. Um, when someone is captured, uh, they are uh, uh, to be treated with, with kindness and um, charity and to be treated if they are wounded. Um, so you see just war tradition permeating the basic rules and guidelines that govern tactical actions overseas. So it is there. Um, and I hate to think what our military and other militaries would be like without the just war tradition sort of hanging over the top of everything else that we get taught. Um, I think it's really important that we keep re revisiting it. Um, and I'm not sure... Any other tradition is sufficient enough to make sure that when we send people overseas, that they, they act in a way that's consistent um, with what we believe as a, as a country, as Australians. What was so interesting coming from a military man was the way Andrew Hastie insisted on ending our conversation on the note of the darkness of war. He quoted Shakespeare's Henry V to the effect that a just person, a person of peace, will take no pleasure in letting slip the dogs of war. There's a scene at the Siege of Harfleur where Henry V calls on the governor of the town to surrender and it's a masterful piece of coercion. And what, he's, what he basically says is, if you don't surrender and I unleash my soldiers, um, you are going to experience hell. Uh, war is hell. And once I unleash it, I won't be able to stop it. And I think it's a modern conceit to think that war is a form of policy like any other area of government policy. Uh, war has its own locomotive. It's inherently escalatory. And uh, policymakers are kidding themselves if they think they can sort of keep human nature in check and everything nice and neat. And I, I, I love what Henry V says. He says, Therefore, you men of Harfleur, take pity of your town and of your people. Whilst yet my soldiers are in my command, whilst yet the cool and temperate wind of grace o'erblows the filthy and contagious clouds of heady murder, spoil and villainy. If not, why in a moment look to see the blind and bloody soldier with foul hand defile the locks of your shrill shrieking daughters your fathers taken by the silver beards and their most reverend heads dashed to the walls your naked infants spitted upon pikes whilst the mad mothers with their howls confused do break the clouds as did the wives of jewry at herod's bloody hunting slaughterman what say you will you yield and this avoid or guilty in defense be thus destroyed that's powerful, mate. And uh, I love the thought of SAS commanders reading Shakespeare. We should do more of it. <laughs> and it's some of the most terrific passages you'll read in, in English, I think, the way he describes war. But it's a fundamental truth there. We should always seek peace. We should be very careful about going to war. That's the lesson I've learned. Andrew 
recommends you check out not just Henry V, but in particular the 2012 Tom Hiddleston version, The Hollow Crown. Well worth the effort. And if you still like what we're doing here, even after today, please head to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. We've got a competition going at the moment for the best written review. See the details in our show notes. And please go to underceptions.com, pick up one of our t-shirts from the store, and if you can, click donate. Help us cover the costs of each episode, which is currently about $3,000 an episode. I really appreciate it. While you're there, send us a question and I'll try and answer it in an upcoming Q&A episode. Next episode, we're going to take a long, hard look at perhaps the most influential and questioned figure in Christian history and certainly the most controversial author in the New Testament. We're looking at the life and writings of Paulos Apostolos, the Apostle Paul. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne, and directed by General Mark Hadley. Editing by Richard Humwee. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Underception possible. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com, letting the truth out. An Underceptions podcast. <laughs>